Chapter Eleven, Part One of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Eleven, Columbia, South Carolina, February twenty, eighteen sixty-two to July twenty-one, eighteen sixty-two. Part One. Columbia, South Carolina, February twenty, eighteen sixty-two. Had an appetite for my dainty breakfast. Always breakfast in bed now. But then my mercury contained such bad news. That is an appetizing style of matutinal newspaper. Fort Donelson has fallen, but no men fell with it. It is prisoners for them that we cannot spare, or prisoners for us that we may not be able to feed. That is so much to be forfended, as Keats says. They lost six thousand, we two thousand. I grudge that proportion. In vain, alas, ye gallant few, few but undismayed. Again they make a stand. We have Buckner, Beauregard, and Albert Sidney Johnston. With such leaders in God's help, we may be saved from the hated Yankees. Who knows? Footnote. Fort Donelson stood on the Cumberland River, about sixty miles northwest of Nashville. The Confederate garrison numbered about 18,000 men. General Grant invested the fort on February 13, 1862, and General Buckner, who commanded it, surrendered on February 16th. The Federal force at the time of the surrender numbered 27,000 men, their loss in killed and wounded being 2,660 men, and the Confederate loss about 2,000. End footnote. February 21st. A crowd collected here last night, and there was a serenade. I am like Mrs. Nickleby, who never saw a horse coming full speed, but she thought the cheery bulls had sent post-haste to take Nicholas into co-partnership. So I got up and dressed, late as it was. I felt sure England had sought our alliance at last, and we would make a Yorktown of it before long. Who was it? Will you ever guess? Artemis Goodwin and General Owens of Florida. Just then Mr. Chestnut rushed in, put out the light, locked the door, and sat still as a mouse. Rap, rap, came at the door. I say, Chestnut, they are calling for you. At last we heard Janny, hotel-keeper, loudly proclaiming from the piazza that Colonel Chestnut was not here at all, at all. After a while, when they had all gone from the street, and the very house itself had subsided into perfect quiet, the door again was roughly shaken. "'I say, Chestnut, old fellow, come out. I know you are there. Nobody here now wants to hear you make a speech. That crowd has all gone. We want a little quiet talk with you. I am just from Richmond.' That was the open sesame, and today I hear none of the Richmond news is encouraging. Colonel Shaw is blamed for the shameful Roanoke surrender. Footnote. General Burnside captured the Confederate garrison at Roanoke Island on February 8, 1862. End footnote. Toombs is out on a rampage, and swears he will not accept a seat in the Confederate Senate, given in the insulting way his was by the Georgia legislature calls it shabby treatment, and adds that Georgia is not the only place where good men have been so ill-used. The governor and council have fluttered the dovecoats, or, at least, the tea-tables. They talk of making a call for all silver, etc. I doubt if we have enough to make the sacrifice worth while, but we propose to set the example. February 22nd. What a beautiful day for our Confederate president to be inaugurated. God speed him, God keep him, God save him. John Chestnut's letter was quite what we needed. 
In spirit it is all that one could ask. He says, Our late reverses are acting finely with the Army of the Potomac. A few more thrashings, and every man will enlist for the war. Victories made us too sanguine and easy, not to say vainglorious. Now for the rub, and let them have it. A lady wrote to Mrs. Bunch, Dear Emma, when shall I call for you to go and see Madame de Saint-André? She was answered, Dear Lou, I cannot go with you to see Madame de Saint-André, but will always retain the kindest feeling towards you on account of our past relations, etc. The astounded friend wrote to ask what all this meant. No answer came, and then she sent her husband to ask and demand an explanation. He was answered thus, my dear fellow, there can be no explanation possible. Hereafter there will be no intercourse between my wife and yours. Simply that, nothing more. So the men meet at the club, as before, and there is no further trouble between them. The lady upon whom the slur is cast says, And I am a woman and can't fight. February 23rd. While Mr. Chestnut was in town, I was at the Preston's. John Cochran and some other prisoners had asked to walk over the grounds, visit the Hampton Gardens, and some friends in Columbia. After the dreadful state of the public mind at the escape of one of the prisoners, General Preston was obliged to refuse his request. Mrs. Preston and the rest of us wanted him to say yes, and so find out who in Columbia were his treacherous friends. Pretty bold people they must be to receive Yankee invaders in the midst of the row over one enemy already turned loose amid us. General Preston said, We are about to sacrifice life and fortune for a fickle multitude who will not stand up to us at last. The harsh comments made as to his lenient conduct to prisoners have embittered him. I told him what I had heard Captain Trenum say in his speech. He said he would listen to no criticism except from a man with a musket on his shoulder, and who had, besides, enlisted for the war, had given up all, and had no choice but to succeed or die. February 24th. Congress and the newspapers render one desperate, ready to cut one's own throat. They represent everything in our country as deplorable. Then comes someone back from our gay and gallant army at the front. The spirit of our army keeps us up, after all. Letters from the army revive one. They come as welcome as the flowers in May, hopeful and bright, utterly unconscious of our weak despondency. February 25th. They have taken at Nashville more men than we had at Manassas. There was bad handling of troops, we poor women think, or this would not be. Footnote. Nashville was evacuated by the Confederates under Albert Sidney Johnston in February 1862. End footnote. Mr. Venable added bitterly, Giving up our soldiers to the enemy means giving up the cause. We cannot replace them. The up-country men were Union men, generally, and the low-country, seceders. The former growl. They never liked those aristocratic boroughs and parishes. They had themselves a good and prosperous country, a good constitution, and were satisfied. But they had to go, to leave all and fight for the others who had brought on all the trouble and who do not show too much disposition to fight for themselves. That is the extreme up-country view. The extreme low-country says Jeff Davis is not enough out of the Union yet. His inaugural address reads as one of his speeches did four years ago in the United States Senate. 
A letter in a morning paper accused Mr. Chestnut of staying too long in Charleston. The editor was asked for the writer's name. He gave it as Little Moses, the governor's secretary. When Little Moses was spoken to, in a great trepidation, he said that Mrs. Pickens wrote it and got him to publish it. So it was dropped, for Little Moses is such an arrant liar, no one can believe him. Besides, if that sort of thing amuses Mrs. Pickens, let her amuse herself. March 5th. Mary Preston went back to Mulberry with me from Columbia. She found a man there tall enough to take her in to dinner, Tom Boykin, who is six feet four, the same height as her father. Tom was very handsome in his uniform, and Mary prepared for a nice time, but he looked as if he would so much rather she did not talk to him, and he set her such a good example, saying never a word. Old Colonel Chestnut came for us. When the train stopped, Quashy, shiny black, was seen on his box, as glossy and perfect in his way as his blooded bays. But the old colonel would stop and pick up the dirtiest little negro I ever saw who was crying by the roadside. This ragged little black urchin was made to climb up and sit beside Quash. It spoilt the symmetry of the turnout, but it was a character touch, and the old gentleman knows no law but his own will. He had a biscuit in his pocket, which he gave this sniffling little negro, who proved to be his man Skip's son. I was ill at Mulberry, and never left my room. Dr. Boykin came, more military than medical. Colonel Chestnut brought him up, also teams, who said he was down in the mouth. Our men were not fighting as they should. We had only pluck and luck, and a dogged spirit of fighting, to offset their weight in men and munitions of war. I wish I could remember Teem's words. This is only his idea. His language was quaint and striking. No grammar, but no end of sense and good feeling. Old Colonel Chestnut, catching a word, began his litany, saying, Numbers will tell. Napoleon, you know, etc., etc. At Mulberry the war has been ever afar off, but threats to take the silver came very near indeed. Silver that we had before the Revolution silver that Mrs. Chestnut brought from Philadelphia. Jack Canty and Dr. Boykin came back on the train with us. Wade Hampton is the hero. Sweet May Dacre. Lord Byron and Disraeli make their rosebuds Catholic. May Dacre is another Aurora Raby. I like Disraeli because I find so many clever things in him. I like the sparkle and the glitter. Carlyle does not hold up his hands in holy horror of us because of African slavery. Lord Lyons has gone against us. Footnote. Richard Lord Lyons, British Minister to the United States from 1858 to 1865. End footnote. Lord Derby and Louis Napoleon are silent in our hour of direst need. People call me Cassandra, for I cry that outside hope is quenched. From the outside, no help indeed cometh to this beleaguered land. March 7th. Mrs. Middleton was dolorous indeed. General Lee had warned the planters about Combahee, etc., that they must take care of themselves now. He could not do it. Confederate soldiers had committed some outrages on the plantations, and officers had punished them promptly. She poured contempt upon Yancey's letter to Lord Russell. Footnote. Lord Russell was Foreign Secretary under the Palmerston administration of 1859 to 1865. It was the letter of a shopkeeper, not in the style of a statesman at all. We called to see Mary Macduffie. 
Footnote. Mary Macduffie was the second wife of Wade Hampton. End footnote. She asked Mary Preston what Dr. Boykin had said of her husband as we came along in the train. She heard it was something very complimentary. Mary P. tried to remember, and to repeat it all, to the joy of the other Mary, who liked to hear nice things about her husband. Mary was amazed to hear of the list of applicants for promotion. One delicate-minded person accompanied his demand for advancement by a request for a written description of the Manassas battle. He had heard Colonel Chestnut give such a brilliant account of it in Governor Cobb's room. The Merrimack business has come like a gleam of lightning illumining a dark scene. Our sky is black and lowering. Footnote. The Merrimack was formerly a forty-gun screw frigate of the United States Navy. In April 1861, when the Norfolk Navy Yard was abandoned by the United States, she was sunk. Her hull was afterward raised by the Confederates, and she was reconstructed on new plans and renamed the Virginia. On March 2, 1862, she destroyed the Congress, a sailing ship of fifty guns, and the Cumberland, a sailing ship of thirty guns, at Newport News. On March 7th she attacked the Minnesota, but was met by the Monitor and defeated in a memorable engagement. Many features of modern battleships have been derived from the Merrimack and Monitor. End footnote. The judge saw his little daughter at my window, and he came up. He was very smooth and kind. It was really a delightful visit. Not a disagreeable word was spoken. He abused no one whatever, for he never once spoke of anyone but himself and himself he praised without stint. He did not look at me once, though he spoke very kindly to me. March 10th, second year of Confederate independence. I write daily for my own diversion. These memoirs, poor severe, may at some future day afford facts about these times and prove useful to more important people than I am. I do not wish to do any harm or to hurt anyone. If any scandalous stories creep in, they can easily be burned. It is hard, in such a hurry as things are now, to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now that I have made my protest and written down my wishes, I can scribble on with a free will and free conscience. Congress at the North is down on us. They talk largely of hanging slave owners. They say they hold Port Royal, as we did when we took it originally from the Aborigines, who fled before us. So we are to be exterminated and improved, all in the end, from the face of the earth. Medea, when asked, Country, wealth, husband, children, all are gone, and now what remains? Answered, Medea remains. There is a time in most men's lives when they resemble Job, sitting among the ashes and drinking in the full bitterness of complicated misfortune. March 11th. A freshman came, quite eager to be instructed in all the wiles of society. He wanted to try his hand at a flirtation, and requested minute instructions, as he knew nothing whatever, he was so very fresh. Dance with her, he was told, and talk with her, walk with her, and flatter her. Dance until she is warm and tired, then propose to walk in a cool, shady piazza. It must be a somewhat dark piazza. Begin your promenade slowly, warm up to your work draw her arm closer and closer, then break her wing. Heavens, what is that? Break her wing? Why, you do not know even that. Put your arm round her waist and kiss her. After that it is all plain sailing. 
She comes down when you call like the coon to Captain Scott. You need not fire, Captain, etc. The aspirant for fame as a flirt followed these lucid directions literally, but when he seized the poor girl and kissed her, she uplifted her voice in terror and screamed as if the house was on fire. So quick, sharp, and shrill were her yells for help that the bold flirt sprang over the banister, upon which grew a strong climbing rose. This he struggled through and ran toward the college, taking a bee-line. He was so mangled by the thorns that he had to go home and have them picked out by his family. The girl's brother challenged him. There was no mortal combat, however, for the gay young fellow who had led the freshman's ignorance astray stepped forward and put things straight. An explanation and an apology at every turn hushed it all up. Now we all laughed at this foolish story most heartily, but Mr. Venable remained grave and preoccupied, and was asked, Why are you so unmoved? It is funny. I like more probable fun. I have been in college, and I have kissed many a girl, but never a one scrome yet. Last Saturday was the bloodiest we have had in proportion to numbers. Footnote. On March 7 and 8, 1862, occurred the Battle of Pea Ridge in western Arkansas, where the Confederates were defeated, and on March 8 and 9th occurred the conflict in Hampton Roads between the warships Merrimack, Cumberland, Congress, and Monitor. End footnote. The enemy lost 1,500. The handful left at home are rushing to arms at last. Bragg has gone to join Beauregard at Columbus, Mississippi. Old Abe truly took the field in that Scotch cap of his. Mrs. McCord, the eldest daughter of Langdon Chevis, got up a company for her son, raising it at her own expense. Footnote. Louisa Susanna McCord, whose husband was David J. McCord, a lawyer of Columbia, who died in 1855. She was educated in Philadelphia and was the author of several books of verse, including Caius Gracchus, A Tragedy. She was also a brilliant pamphleteer. End footnote. She has the brains and energy of a man. Today she repeated a remark of a low-country gentleman who is dissatisfied. This government, Confederate, protects neither person nor property. Fancy this scornful turn of her lip. Someone asked for Langdon Chevis, her brother. Oh, Langdon, she replied coolly. He is a pure patriot. He has no ambition. While I was there, he was letting Confederate soldiers ditch through his garden and ruin him at their leisure. Cotton is five cents a pound, and labor of no value at all. It commands no price whatever. People gladly hire out their Negroes to have them fed and clothed, which latter cannot be done. Cotton Osnaburg at thirty-seven and a half cents a yard leaves no chance to clothe them. Langdon was for martial law and making the bloodsuckers disgorge their ill-gotten gains. We, poor fools, who are patriotically ruining ourselves, will see our children in the gutter while treacherous dogs of millionaires go rolling by in their coaches, coaches that were acquired by taking advantage of our necessities. This terrible battle of the ships, Monitor, Merrimack, etc. All hands on board the Cumberland went down. She fought gallantly and fired around as she sank. The Congress ran up a white flag. She fired on our boats as they went up to take off her wounded. She was burned. The worst of it is that all this will arouse them to more furious exertions to destroy us. They hated us so before, but how now? 
In Columbia, I do not know a half-dozen men who would not gaily step into Jeff Davis's shoes with a firm conviction that they would do better in every respect than he does. The monstrous conceit, the fatuous ignorance of these critics. It is pleasant to hear Mrs. McCord on this subject, when they begin to shake their heads and tell us what Jeff Davis ought to do. End of chapter 11, part 1